Welcome to Upstream Downstream, a lively civil discussion devoted to the political, policy, and cultural topics that often divide us. Upstream Downstream is presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communication at Shepherd University in cooperation with WSHC-FM and the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative. And now for this week's discussion. Welcome to Upstream Downstream. I'm Bianca Eisen. One of the concerns under debate is the need, or lack thereof, for further COVID relief funding. Joining me today to discuss reasons against further relief funding is Rachel Gresler. She is a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. Rachel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Bianca. There are some members in Congress who are pushing for further relief funding for COVID, but there are still billions from previous packages waiting to be used. How should we use these leftover funds before considering more relief? Yeah, and so Congress has already passed $6.6 trillion in COVID relief. That's the equivalent of almost $52,000 per household. And almost a trillion of that is still sitting out there that has not been spent, hasn't been obligated. And so if there is actually any need for further COVID spending, it should absolutely be coming from that existing money that's out there. But I think that we're already seeing that the spending and all this money that's been out there, a lot of it financed by the Federal Reserve is causing more harm than good because it's adding to things like the rising costs. Um, Inflation is at a 40-year record high. Everybody knows about the supply chain problems. There's this massive labor shortage out there. And so I think the better policy is to stop spending to stop putting all these restrictions in place and to instead allow people to kind of get back to their lives as they're comfortable doing so. One of the concerns that was brought with the first wave of relief funding was that it wasn't being targeted towards people who actually needed it. And instead, we ended up with this blanket spending. Everyone got something, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether people actually needed the money or not. There's been rising issues with fraud. Has this been a trend for subsequent funding? And is it a concern for future funding? It is. And, you know, at the beginning, there was a need to get money out the door quickly. And so there was some expectation that it wouldn't be spent the most efficiently as it possibly could. The problem was, is that once you got past those first couple months, policymakers failed to do the right thing to rein in the programs that weren't working. And we ended up with massive fraud and abuse in the federal unemployment insurance program where virtually anybody could qualify to get an extra $600 per week on top of the normal unemployment insurance benefits. And so it's been estimated that 40% of the money that was spent out the door, $360 billion actually went to people who weren't unemployed. Many of those were criminals living overseas. And then even the policies like the Paycheck Protection Program that probably many people did benefit from, they benefited at a very high cost. It's been estimated that every job for a year that was saved under that program cost taxpayers $200,000. And so these policies were in place much longer than they needed to be to begin with. And absolutely, we should have learned from the problems that existed with them and not be considering reenacting more COVID spending. Can you talk to me more about some of these programs that weren't working? 
Yes, the unemployment insurance program was incredibly problematic. You know, states are normally in charge of these programs, but what happened is the federal government came in and they set new rules for eligibility that the states really couldn't enforce. Um, Their systems are very outdated, and so they weren't set up, for example, to be providing benefits and to have the right checks in place to make sure that people are actually eligible eligible for somebody who's self-employed or for who's a freelancer, gig worker. And so what that meant is that you just kind of had to approve these benefits, even though there might not be any documentation that somebody had actually lost income or even documentation that they were who they actually said they were. And that's the problem there. You know, when I added up what it would have cost to send unemployment insurance checks to every single American who was unemployed, 100% of unemployed workers, which is, you know, compared to normal times, only about 40% of workers um, qualify for those benefits. But if we had just sent them to all of those people who are unemployed, it would have cost only 60% as much as we actually spent. So we basically wasted $360 billion and we encouraged people also that were legitimately getting the benefits to not be going back to work because they could make more um, from unemployment than they could staying home. And that's led to a really problematic labor market right now where employers just don't have the workers that they need to fill the demand they have for their goods and services. You mentioned that states didn't have the technology to enforce that the money was going where it needed to at the beginning. But now we're about two years into this. Mm-hmm. Have, have states been developing the technology that they need to have more responsible funding? Some states have um, updated their technology to some degree. I don't think that anybody has the exact right solution Um, They are looking at ways to improve that. And some of them have been able to recoup small amounts, you know, a billion here, a billion there. But when you're talking about hundreds of billions that that was lost, um, you know, I don't think that enough has been done yet. But absolutely, the states do need to be updating these antiquated systems. But a bigger issue is that the government should not be providing benefits in ways that they don't have the capability to check whether or not somebody is actually eligible for that benefit. So there have to be better rules in place. And really it it comes to the federal government putting these rules in place, not knowing what the state's capabilities to um, fulfill them are. So a concern that you brought up that has been also brought up because of relief spending, the boosted unemployment benefits, which many states have cut or have expired, Uh, that they've caused staffing issues in many industries. How would further spending hurt the workforce? Well, even though those unemployment insurance benefits are not in place anymore, there's been a massive expansion in food stamp benefits, in rental assistance, in Obamacare subsidies to people who are relatively high up the income scale. Um, There's talk about bringing back the monthly child payments. And the problem with welfare without work policies is that they discourage work. And the most troubling part is they discourage work at the lowest end of the income scale. And that's why some economists estimated that just the child payments alone would cause 1.5 million American parents to drop out of the labor force, resulting in no net improvement in deep childhood poverty. Um, And you need that to be kind of the foundation. Having work in that work example is really crucial um, to children to their development. But when we look at the labor market right now, 
it's adding to inflationary pressures because you have half of businesses that say they have positions that they simply can't fill. And when you can't fill positions, you increase compensation, but you're paying people to do the same job. You're paying them more for that. And so you have to raise your prices and it gets into this you know, cycle where prices are rising, wages are rising, but workers aren't actually any better off because they can't buy anymore with their higher paychecks because everything that they're purchasing is going up. And so it's a really you know, problematic thing that's happening with there being so many fewer workers out there who are willing to accept these jobs. Well, a number of businesses, as you've said, they've offered more compensation, more sign-on bonuses as a way to bolster their staff. Mm -hmm. Using relief funds to help bolster their efforts as opposed to giving it to people as they've done in the past, would that help to alleviate some of the staffing issues, the inflation? Well, in there, I would say, let's first take away anything that's encouraging people to not work before you consider adding some type of bonus on top of the workers. Um, You know, and if I guess the problems come down to playing favoritism, because unless this this is just broadly applied across all industries, all workers, that the government's going to pay, say, 10 percent more um, for people to work, it's not sustainable. Because, yes, maybe it gets them in the door temporarily, but if that business can't continue to pay them that higher amount in the future, then all it does is, you know, creates uncertainty that they might not have their jobs or it adds to inflationary pressures. And you you end up with no net gain from that because, yes, people are making more, but they're not able to buy anything more with it. And so it's not really any greater incentive to be working. So maybe you have data on this, maybe you don't, but with unemployment, with people not going back to work, has there been a rise in people going back to college or learning a different trade, going to vocational schools? It's a little too early to know on that. Um, But what I can say is that from some unpublished data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is that the people that aren't coming back to work, it's not just one group. You know, it's not just parents with young children or it's not just older workers who were um, concerned about their health. It's really across the spectrum. Um, And so I think that, yes, there are some people who have taken this opportunity to go back to school or to pursue a different career. Um, You know, unless we get the right policies in place that actually make work pay, and that don't make not working pay, um, then you're not going to have the people that you need in the labor market. And I think that longer term, instead of just paying people more to do the exact same thing, which just creates inflation, we should be looking for ways that workers actually become more productive. And as you mentioned, you know, further education, and that, that doesn't have to be a four-year degree that costs six figures. That can be learning through a new trade um, an alternative education system. So that should be where the focus is. With the research you've been doing around this, as you've said, it's a spectrum of people not coming back, but are there any particular states or demographics for whom this is a more significant issue? Back in the summer, it was definitely a more significant issue for what tended to be the blue states that had not ended those unemployment insurance benefits early. I know there was a study out there that said that had the states that didn't end the benefits instead ended them earlier, then they would have had 850,000 more jobs added. Um, And we can definitely see that certain policies in states, even beyond the unemployment insurance, but things like states 
California that are trying to limit opportunities for individuals to work the way that they want to work by saying, making it really difficult for somebody to be their own boss, to be an independent contractor or or freelancer. Um, That's making it harder for people to find employment, to find income in a way that works for them. And the pandemic revealed an opportunity, I think a silver lining, um, for people to be able to have greater flexibility, more family-friendly policies in the workplace. Um, But a lot of people realized they might rather work for themselves um, and being able to pick and choose where and when and for whom they do work. But some places are looking to eliminate that opportunity. Even federal legislation exists that would make it very difficult to be an independent contractor. You're listening to Upstream Downstream, sponsored by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications and the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative at Shepherd University. We are joined today by Rachel Gressler, a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. We are discussing reasons why we shouldn't have more COVID relief spending. So you mentioned that more people are actually turning to have their own businesses. Is that research that's being taken into account when they're looking at unemployment? Well, I think that policymakers are looking at just the broad unemployment figures, how many people are unemployed and how many new jobs are being created. But there is kind of a difference there because a quote job that is created, those people who have found work on their own are not being counted in that. And so we have seen a little bit of a difference between the increase in the number of people who have employment or some income source versus just the broad jobs figures. But I do hope that policymakers will understand what an important role this independent work plays for individuals and for businesses going forward. You know, the the attack on independent work and on gig work has often been considered um, a way to bring down or to limit the bigger companies like Uber and Lyft. But the reality is, is that being able to use independent contractors is something that allows the little guys to compete with those bigger businesses. Um, The average employer that has four or fewer employees actually relies on seven independent contractors to be able to offer more goods and services to compete with the bigger guy. Um, And so in reality, you're not just restricting big business, you're really damaging the opportunity for smaller businesses and startups and that entrepreneurial activity. So we've mentioned that with the relief spending hurting our workforce. We're at a 40-year high for inflation. Supply chains are being interrupted. There's labor shortages. Many grocery stores are struggling to keep their shelves stocked. What steps should we be taking in lieu of more COVID spending to help lower inflation again, keep our prices down, and stop a further catastrophe from happening? Yeah, thank you for asking that. We actually just put out a special report on inflation at the Heritage Foundation this week, and we list 37 specific policies in there that you know lawmakers in Washington could pursue. But just a summary of them, you know, I guess specifically on the labor market because that's what I focus on, is looking at ways that you can empower individuals to have greater opportunities in the job market and to be able to have more purchasing power. When Congress enacted the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, people saw real wage gains, real wage gains of $1,400 above the previous trends. And that was taking into account the inflation effects. You know, today we're seeing wage gains, but actually 
2.4% wage losses when you take into account inflation. Um, you know, I think that there are some laws that the Department of Labor is considering implementing that they should not, that would restrict independent work. Certainly the unauthorized vaccine ma mandate was a threat on businesses' ability to keep the workers they have and to recruit new workers. Um, repealing something called the Davis-Bacon Act that simply drives up construction costs and limits its supply. So there's a, there's a bunch of ways that policymakers could start fighting inflation. And it, it's interesting to look back in the 1970s, Jimmy Carter faced years worth of record high inflation. And the solutions that he came down to was saying, we have to reduce the size of the government. We have to limit our federal spending. We have to bring down the deficit. We need to get rid of needless regulations um, and restrict the size of the federal workforce. And so I think a lot of those ideas that Jimmy Carter had in 1970, if the administration was willing to accept those now, before we get into longer term high levels of inflation, that would be really helpful. I'd like to shift focus just a little bit with COVID and inflation. There's been mm -hmm. some concern also around our housing market with grants from relief spending that went to home buyers. And as bailouts for these homeowners began expiring mid-pandemic, we've been seeing a surge of foreclosures. Many states have been considering expanding assistance, but would further relief agitate this issue? I think it would. You know, the government's actions in the housing market are part of the reason that the costs went up. You know, home prices were up almost 20% year over year in December, and rental prices were up 15%. And you look at some of the factors there is that the Federal Reserve was buying more mortgage-backed securities to the tune of another $1.2 That pushed down interest rates. And when interest rates go down, home prices go up. Um, and so, yes, the people that get in at that time can afford more house, but it's problematic in the future for people who aren't able to afford those. And then the eviction moratorium that was in place for a pretty long period of time, you know, was ruled unlawful and it's not there anymore. But that created environments where I've heard from property owners where it was just common to not pay your mortgage or your rent. Somebody learned that their neighbor wasn't and then, you know, entire apartment buildings wouldn't be paying their rent. And there's limited ability for those property owners to get that money back after the fact. And so they have to recoup that if they want to, you know, not foreclose on their own property. And so that's part of the reason that we've seen the rental prices go up as well. And so I think that really the solution here is to get the government subsidies, um, the Federal Reserve's purchases of mortgage-backed securities and, and subsidizing Fannie and Freddie out of it um, so that you can actually get a baseline of, of what the market is. And then it can be, um, prices would more reflect what consumers are actually able to afford taking out those temporary subsidies because then the problem is that they're not affordable in the longer term. COVID spending has gone into a wide variety of parts of our lives. And one of the concerns that you had raised previously in your article about why we shouldn't have more COVID relief spending was that it would lead to a, quote, education deprivation. How would further relief spending hurt our education? Yeah, what we saw in some of the earlier COVID relief bills that were passed is that the amount that states received were tied to certain metrics. Um, and often states could get more money 
if they their schools were shut down because it looked like they needed more funding in order to be able to bring them back in person. And so the potential here is that the funding, if we pass another bill, could actually encourage more school districts to shut down, to shift to virtual learning, when we know that just had such a devastating impact on many children. Then for some of them, it will unfortunately be lifelong consequences there. And also just considering kids themselves and the enormous debt burden that we have put on them. I mean, children today are already going to face $1.3 trillion of interest payments on the debt, you know, two decades from now when they're out working. So that's $8,600 for every child today, just to pay for the interest on the debt. You know, the the past generation's excesses most of all within the recent COVID-19 context. And so I think we need to be thinking about their futures and their ability to finance all this spending that we're taking on right now. So in addition to the massive debt that we do have in the U.S. right now, what are some of these other lifelong consequences you mentioned? Well, we've seen that, you know, certain kids just kind of dropped off and weren't attending school at all. And that was especially at the lower end of the income scale. And for minorities, they were more likely to not be engaged at any degree. And when you think about elementary school kids who lost the year in which they were supposed to be learning how to read and to learn the basic math facts, that sets them back permanently. And then we've also heard of the mental health declines suicide rates being up. Um, And so it's just been really problematic for kids. And in so many ways, we've learned that they they need to be in school. And because COVID-19 is less of a health risk for them, it's all the more important for them to be there. And nevertheless, we see districts across the U.S. right now that are going virtual for periods of time. And so I think that's really troubling. Well, as as we come to the end of our time together, do you have any further thoughts on what we should be doing to help reinvigorate our economy? I think the first step for policymakers is to say, in what ways are they creating barriers for workers um, to be participating in the labor force, to be earning higher earnings, for businesses to be doing what they can, and first remove any barriers that are out there and then just focus on opportunities going forward. And I think that part of the federal solution, too, needs to be getting our fiscal house in order um, so that there is certainty going forward that even current workers today and certainly future workers will not be overly burdened by the debts that we've accumulated. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. I'd like to thank our guest, Rachel Gressler, a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlement at the Heritage Foundation. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Bianca. I'd also like to thank our producer, Sarah Burke, and our acting director, Greg Fields. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, I'm Bianca Eisen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Upstream Downstream, presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University. To learn more about the Stubblefield Institute, other programs such as the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative or the American Conversation series, or to become a friend of the Institute, please go online to stubblefieldinstitute.org.